Welcome to More Than Seven Dirty Words, the official FCC podcast. I'm your host, Evan Schwarztrauber. On September 7th, Hurricane Irma hit Puerto Rico. And not even two weeks later, on September 20th, Hurricane Maria followed. The damage was catastrophic. There was loss of life, injuries, and property damage. And the damage to comms networks was pretty substantial as well. Over 90% of the commercial, public safety, and government comm systems went down. For those that remained online or the ones that were struggling to get back online, fuel shortages, maintenance, and security issues continued to plague these public safety and law enforcement operations. Now, there were a lot of entities uh, involved in the response, but what was the role of the FCC in the wake of these storms? Joining me is Roberto Mussenden, an attorney in the FCC's Public Safety and Homeland Security Bureau, where he works to ensure that first responders can communicate with one another during emergencies. Roberto, thanks for joining the show. Happy to be here. So how did you end up being part of the hurricane response here? You know, what about you made you the point man for this? Well, we have a Office of Emergency um, a Division that deals primarily with FEMA in these responses, and they're very, very good. They had been done. Harvey, they had done Irma. When the time came after Maria, I basically wandered over and volunteered myself to go down to help with the response because I had grown up there. And so it was personal for me. And with um, very little hesitation and a fair amount of confidence on their part, they just said, you can go. We'll give you some training. And we have confidence that when you go down there, you will be able to make the right decisions and reach back when necessary. So it was a, a leap of faith on their part, and I am very, very grateful for it. Well, we're all grateful that you made that uh, leap of faith as well. Now, before we get into the specifics of what you did from a you know administrative perspective, from an FCC perspective, what was it like being on the ground in your birthplace? I mean, of course, you had seen it before the, the devastation. I mean, what was it like to be on the ground after these two storms? So flying in, it, it was devastating to see how brown everything was. Um, the vegetation had been ripped out. And um, it's a very, very verdant and lush island. And to see it uh, just devastated like that, just from the air, was very, very uh, disturbing. And then once we got on the ground, uh, it's not dystopian, but it was post-apocalyptic. I mean, there were no lights. There was, we were coming into the airport and we're going from the airport to where we were going to be working and actually where I was going to be staying that first night in the dark. I was completely disoriented. There was no traffic sound. Um, there was no one on the roads. So it was very, very disconcerting and um, a little unnerving. And of course, given that you know we are a telecommunications regulator here at the FCC, the kinds of things we're looking at are you know television, radio, cable television, broadband, wireless, and wireline, you know, people's cell phones and their home connection. What were the challenges facing all of those entities? So the number one challenge that we had really never thought of, or I had never thought of, is if you have no power, you have no communications. And the power grid was completely torn apart. So you had to find some sort of whether you was getting entities back on the grid but primarily was through use of secondary power sources, generators essentially. So those needed to get up. The towers were down. Um, so the, there was a 1,000-foot television tower that is 
that just came down. I mean, I ended up seeing it later, and, and it's, I mean, it's something to see something that size just be on the ground. So that was sort of it. And getting fuel to these high sites, because a lot of the television and a lot of the public safety high sites and a lot of microwave backhauls are on the top of mountains. And those roads to those were rendered impassable by mudslides or debris, so those had to be cleared. And some places, uh, the roads weren't able to take a truck, so you had to take fuel bladders up and constantly recycle and bring parts for the generators and keep them up and running. Now, of course, um, when we say over 90% of the networks went down, people might be wondering, I'm wondering, what remained? I mean, it was such a devastating hurricane that you really start to scratch your head and think, how could anything withstand this? But in terms of communications infrastructure, what was left in the wake of the hurricane? So there was some of the wireless infrastructure remained up, and as that as the carriers started to heal themselves, what would happen is they ended up going into an open roaming agreement where anybody could use anybody's network, and you would have pockets of connectivity, and you would be able to see that on the side of the road because all of a sudden cars would pull off and stop, and people would get out, and there'd be these little crowds of people and in the end, the carriers just started putting up signs where they had areas of connectivity so people could go. And bit by bit, those kind of those areas began to spread as the carriers started working from the metropolitan area out to start getting service back. So that's one side of it. The other side of it from a public safety standpoint is all your first responder networks were, their towers were up on the mountains, so they were either down or they were off the grid, so we had to get them fuel so then you're police, fire, and EMS could start doing their traditional land mobile radio. And so that was a very large endeavor, just getting fuel to places. And I remember seeing some of those photos and videos online on Twitter elsewhere um, of just people clustered in fields trying to grab a signal so that they could let their family and friends, you know, whether in Florida or New York, let them know that they were safe. It was pretty moving stuff. Um, and in the wake of hurricanes, we often think that, you know, we're going back to the old school in many ways, right? As you mentioned, fuel for generators, like anything really that works. And, you know, something you mentioned to me when we were chatting before the show is uh, that you can hand crank a radio, but you can't hand crank a television station. So was radio a particularly important um, mechanism for emergency alerts, other information, given that it's kind of resilient as compared with maybe other communications infrastructure? It, it it's reminded me of how resilient uh, broadcast radio is, and it is in many ways the ultimate uh, one-to-many communications device. And so, and people are used to it. They've created a relationship with their broadcasters, and so that's a familiar voice. And especially during a, a traumatic time like that, you do want to hear that familiar voice. And it allows the government to kind of work with the broadcasters to get information out. And it doesn't take a great deal of infrastructure to get a radio station up on the air. You're going to need power, whether that's on the grid or um, via generator right. and antennas and to, to get the station going. But once you get it going, in terms of technology that's needed, uh, transistor radios will work, and then people can start to go in. What One of the things that was a I won't say a hindrance, but it was new for me was the advent of social media kind of providing answers when there was no official answer. So sometimes we would get 
we would hear anecdotally that there were just basically rumors being started via WhatsApp or, um, you know, somebody had tweeted out something and that became, in the absence of any official news, the news. So it was very, very important for the Commonwealth government to work with the broadcasters to start getting um, the essentially the traditional communications mechanisms up and running again. And you also mentioned that cable TV was a little bit more resilient. Of course, you know, over-the-air television, as you had mentioned, um, it takes a lot more to keep those TV stations online as opposed to an FM station or an AM station. But how did cable TV withstand the storm, you know, better than someone might assume? Well, because they, it, a lot of times they don't have the towers. So they're just going right into the head end of the cable station. So that kind of gave them some protection. Now, in the areas where there was, uh, the cable was strong and early strong instead of buried, they're going to lose that connectivity to the houses. But at least the ability to get the information into the cable head end was there. And, of course, that was one way of getting emergency information out there. Now, of course, you know, in terms of the role of the FCC, it's not like you're going down there with construction tools and putting towers back on the air, right? And it might not be intuitive why the FCC had such a robust response to the hurricane. But, you know, you had kind of uh, told me that there were two buckets of areas. You know, one is licensing, one is coordinating frequencies. Let's start with that because – you know, given the scope of damage, you had so many different entities on the ground. You had the U.S. Army, you had New York Fire Department and New York Police Department. I'm from New York City, of course, huge Puerto Rican population there. So it makes sense that they would want to chip in. Red Cross, I mean, how is that stuff coordinated and what role did you play? So a lot of entities came in and a lot of them brought their own equipment. But all of them work on discrete frequencies, and if you're geographically separated, let's just say Florida and New York, you may be using the same frequencies and may have them programmed into your radio. If you're trying to do that in the same area, you're not going to be able to operate. So when, what our job was to do, and I worked with our partner agency, NTIA, which is part of the Department of Commerce, and they regulate the federal frequencies, is find out what people were planning, what frequencies they were planning to operate on and then work to make sure ahead of time that we deconflicted any potential interference so folks could be able to go out and do their job and not worry and try and cure interference after it occurred. Yeah, and of course, this is normally stuff that is dealt with not in the wake of an emergency, so it must have been a little bit more chaotic to have to deal with that in such a short time frame. Now, in terms of other things the FCC could do um, to help get things back on the air more quickly, um, of course, given that radio stations went down and TV stations went down, some of these entities might have wanted to start rebuilding infrastructure or building new infrastructure. You know, maybe their original location is now impossible because of a mudslide, but they found a new location. And that might sound obvious, right? Just like find a place to put the tower and go. But of course, it's not that obvious because there's all sorts of regulatory stuff that needs to happen, all sorts of licensing issues that the FCC deals with. And maybe we would deal with that and take our time in another set of circumstances, but this was obviously an emergency. So talk a little bit about the licensing area uh, that you helped coordinate when you were down there. So one of the other things that was really affirming for this experience for me is I really learned how good this agency cooperates. Um, what it turned out a lot of times what my role was, was calling back to headquarters or calling the op center and going, who in the commission does media? And they would give me a name and I would be able to put the people in contact with it. So in many ways, I didn't have to 
go outside of my uh, comfort area because the folks who could provide me that professional advice were a phone call away, or I could reach out to them and put them in contact with the people they needed. So the Office of Engineering and Technology, when experimental licenses came up, people wanted to try a new uh, technology, whether it might have been Google Loon or some of the uh, point-to-point uh, devices that they were using to reinitialize the point of sales, I was able to put the prospective licensees in contact with who they needed here to get the licensing done. And then at that point, I could step aside because here at headquarters, they trusted me to ask the right questions, and I was very, very confident in their ability to provide the right answer. So it made life much easier for me down there. Yeah, of course, experimental licenses were very important, you know, kind of an all of the above approach when you have a situation like that. And Google, as you mentioned, uh, got a license to do Project Loon, which was a, a hot air balloon enabled uh, internet. Um, and then, of course, you know, one other aspect of this was just seeing all of the entities that were uh, contributing to the response. I mean, you mentioned Florida broadcasters were donating equipment. You have FEMA down there. I mean, what struck you the most about just the all-hands-on-deck nature of this emergency? Well, in many ways, um, the island, the Commonwealth, their slogan was Puerto Rico se levanta, which is Puerto Rico was getting itself up. And it was, to torture the analogy even more, it's like watching a standing eight count. You know, Puerto Rico's on its knees. It's getting up. And all of us, the federal responders, we were there to assist. But in the end, it was the Commonwealth and the people of the Commonwealth who were getting themselves back up and running. And that was, there were people who literally had had, they were in the hospital after open heart surgery before Maria hit. And they leave the hospital to start working 14, 16 hour days with us in the joint field office. Now, the FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, in addition to being the chairman, he also uh, went down and I guess he was your uh, personal navigator when he visited uh, Puerto Rico because there was no GPS. Uh, so how are his navigation skills? His navigation skills were fine. I mean, we had, we had some, we had some uh, GPS ability. We could use some of, um, some of the phones. And uh, when we had connectivity, his skills were much more valuable uh, riding shotgun. We, the Enforcement Bureau has a, a pair of Tahoes that we keep down. And one of the folks from my bureau who's out of Florida was using one of the Tahoes to do uh, dire not direction finding, but to see what radio stations were on the air so we could give that information. And I was using the other Tahoe basically to get back and forth from wherever I was staying to uh, the joint field office. Well, I... Met the chairman and um, the wireless uh, uh, wireless advisors, Enji Nakazawa, and it said, "Let's go in." I I'm, one of the uh, DHS tower climbers was kind enough to come with me, so we could go up and take him up to El Yunque, which is one of the. It's in the National Rainforest, and it's um, one of the high sites. And so we can take a a tour, so he could see, uh, the chairman could see with his own eyes the damage that had been done, and sort of how inaccessible these places are in terms of being able to restore them. And your uh, you know, stay in Puerto Rico took you to some interesting places. Uh, I guess you weren't exactly staying in the uh, Four Seasons every night that you were there. Uh, what were some of the more unusual places that you stayed as you were you know, traveling throughout the island and you know, working on streamlining, coordinating, and all the things that you were doing? We did. Uh, I mean, the first night was in the 
basement or the exhibit hall of the convention center, which is where FEMA had set up the joint field office. And that was uh, cots um, of various sturdiness. Uh, not all of them are, are uh, one cot collapsed on me in the middle of the night when I was dozing just because it wasn't used to, um, I guess, 240 pounds. But, <laughs> uh, and, and that was always lit so that you, you found that people who were there for a while had made their own essentially shelter so they could get darkness and get some sleep. Um, after there, we, the merchant marines, there were a pair of merchant marine ships, one from New York State, that was the SS Empire State, and I believe the SS Kennedy came from the Massachusetts uh, Merchant Marine Schools. And they, I was there for a few nights, um, and they put up a variety of first responders. And so you were living on a merchant marine vessel, a cargo ship, and with all of the uh, pluses and minuses that involves. Um, the food is great. It's a galley on a ship. It's fantastic. Uh, the downside is if you forget that a ship is essentially a giant steel cage, so there is no cell signal. So at the end of the day, uh, the upper decks are packed with people trying to get a cell signal to call back out. Right. And you know, speaking of ships, um, the FCC's role in hurricane response is not necessarily new. But Puerto Rico being an island must have brought unique challenges that maybe um, more inland areas would not, where you can just truck a lot of things in. You know, once the obviously the weather permits, you can truck a lot of things in. But being an island must have meant things were a little bit different than in other hurricane responses. Correct. What what you have is in the beginning. So there are two ways of bringing things onto the island by air or by sea. There are size constraints beyond a certain size. Things have to come in by ship. You have limited flights into the island. So especially in the beginning, prior to the restoration of radar at some of the, uh, at the main airport, you were dealing visual flight rules only. So you were flying in during the day. So every essentially square foot of the, each of those flights had to be accounted for. That was valuable real estate, whether it was people, equipment. And so it was a triage for the various carriers and the, uh, whether it was FEMA and the agencies trying to figure out how best to utilize that space. If you had to go by boat, that's a four-day transit from the mainland. So anything that you need, you're not going to get through four days, even if you were able to magically get it out of the port. However, that's its own problem. For example, there were 50,000 telephone poles that were shipped to the island by barge, and they arrive in the port. However, a truck can only take 10 poles at a time. So getting the poles just out of the port requires 5,000 truck trips. So it became almost a logistical Jenga that luckily I didn't have to figure out, but I just had to factor in when talking about realistic timelines for restoration to be able to factor those things in. Yeah, you've got crowded airspace, you've got, you know, difficulty transporting things by land once they arrive. I mean, it must have been fairly challenging. Now, it's been almost a year since landfall. You were there at the beginning, and you've also been making periodic trips ever since. Where do things stand a year from the impact? So... The good side is the island is lush, lush and verdant again. Um, the people are 
back in some ways. It, you know, you, you see kind of the, the Puerto Rican nature, it, 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 it infectious, um, they are very, very hospitable, um, welcoming, and, and that's coming back. The infrastructure is very fragile, and it's up and it's running, and we are continuously, well, FEMA, and to the extent that I can help in terms of, from a regulatory standpoint, I do my part, but I mean, it's, and the island, is they're trying to restore a, a very battered infrastructure. And so that's sort of the challenge now, is how do we restore it, yet make it stronger and modernize it? Right. And in addition to the role that you played, which was, you know, very important coordination among the entities and their frequencies, streamlining regulations in order to get things back online and get experimental um, communications infrastructure online, um, the FCC announced in March that um, there would be some money for restoring communications, everything from short-term restoration, you know, fixed broadband, getting 4G LTE back online, you know, getting schools back online through E-rate. So, um, you know, we'll link to more information on that in the show notes. But um, the FCC will be playing a very direct role in terms of trying to get some of this infrastructure back online. Um, any final thoughts before we close out? I, this has been one of the most uh, challenging and gratifying things that I've done in my 20-plus years at the agency. It is uh, been great to work with sectors of the agency that I really did not know existed prior to going down with Maria. And it's been very, very humbling and gratifying to see how willing people were to kind of go outside of their regular scope of work to give me whatever assistance I needed when I went down there. Yeah, and it's been highly illuminating for me to talk to you. You know, I've only worked at this agency for you know, six, seven months, and to get a sense of the unbelievably important role that the FCC's Public Safety and Homeland Security Bureau plays, especially when disaster strikes, it's been very gratifying for me. So thank you for, uh, you know, being the first guest on the show and for, uh, you know, taking the time to chat with me. Happy to do it. Well, this has been our first episode. Uh, For more information on the topics we discussed, check out the links in our show notes, and uh, we'll see you next time.